0: The following is a conversation with Chris Miller. Chris is the Assistant Professor of International History at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, a Jean Kirkpatrick Visiting Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and Eurasia Director at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Chris's work examines key shifts in international politics and economics, and his three books so far are titled, respectively, Putinomics. We Shall Be Masters, and The Struggle to Save the Soviet Economy. So you might have guessed there is a theme to his books there. Uh, Chris is an expert on Russian modern history, particularly economics, and uh, therefore an unlikely type, unlikely profile, to have become one of the journalistic authorities on the semiconductor industry. Maybe not the industry, but certainly the history of the semiconductor, which, by the way, is just uh, jargon. It's synonymous with microchip, computer chip, Uh, semiconductor. They are for our functional purposes, the same thing. So Chris is in the process of publishing his next book, which is precisely on this topic, the big bad political history of the computer chip. And as we sort of touched on in the chat, little did he know when he embarked on this project well before 2021, when supply chain constraints would bring forth to public consciousness the wonderful complexity and importance of semiconductors, that it would become such a popular and spoken about topic. It was in the heat of that uh, 2021 supply chain constraints that I myself became really interested in the industry and went to ASML and spoke with Yoss Benship, who's the vice president of technology at ASML, someone who... Uh, Chris knows now that he's been doing uh, his research, and some of you might remember that interview it was at number 56. And it was actually upon that, it was our mutual admiration for the company ASML uh, that we became connected. I saw Chris feature in a podcast uh, speaking about the supply chain of the ASML EUV con- machine specifically, and reached out to him after that. And I'm so happy I did because I uh, As you will see, this podcast is an absolute masterclass by Chris Miller. Yourself and I, dear listener, we get to sit courtside as Chris really takes us top to bottom the wonderful complexity of this irreplaceable technical marvel, which is the microchip. In this podcast, you can expect to hear about some of the following... An explanation for the complexity in construction of a semiconductor. Jos made the claim that the machine that he was involved in building, which is an irreplaceable part of the construction of a semiconductor, was the most complex machine ever built by humans. And Kruse doubles down doubles, doubles, down on that in agreeance. Uh, we speak about why the supply chain is so fragile. Uh, why can't the US just build a fab? We speak about Moore's law, the geopolitics of the microchip, and then really so much uh, more as well. And so, as usual, hang around to the end to hear my afterthoughts. And with no further ado, here is the magnificent Chris Miller. <laughs> Miller, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So while the purpose of our chat today is the thrilling world of semiconductors, I hope that at times your extensive experience with Russia, writing and thinking about it, can shine through as well. And um, in that vein, I'd like to connect the two from the top, and hopefully it'll also offer a bit of a worldview into sort of who you are and what your interests are. But could you explain why the Soviet Russians were able to create these incredible feats of physics and engineering, the atomic bomb, sending the first guy into space, but they failed to do the exponential shrink and get into the semiconductor game?
1: Well, this this was the puzzle that first brought me into studying the semiconductor industry. Um, I'm by training a historian of Russia's economy, I've written a couple books on Russian economic history and uh, one of the things that always made Russia surprising is that it's a, a relatively poor country compared to most in Europe. And most people wouldn't describe Russia as a technology leader today or 100 years ago. But at a number of important instances, Russia managed to achieve feats of engineering and science. Um, and the, the classic examples of this are exploding the first atomic, the, the second atomic bomb um, in the late 1940s. And then in the over the course of the 1950s, uh, shooting the first person and then Uh, as well as the first satellite uh, up into space. And so so these were accomplishments that showed that the Soviet Union could do technology, at least of a certain type, um, which then made it puzzling to me that why they weren't able to do microelectronics, semiconductors. Um, Because if you were a country fixated on developing the most advanced military, which the Soviets were, um, in a uh, life-and-death competition with the United States over uh, nuclear weapons, which the Soviet Union was, Um, you would think that you'd spend a whole lot of energy building the most advanced guidance systems for your missiles that you could build. Um, And the Soviets tried to do that, but very, very ineffectively, um, such that by the end of the Cold War in the 1980s, they lagged a decade or so behind the U.S. in terms of the ability to miniaturize computing power on semiconductors. So so I wanted to figure out, well, why is that? Why could they make atomic weapons, lots of them, very explosive? Why could they choose one into space but not make semiconductors? And it turns out there are a couple of different reasons. One is that um, for the semiconductor industry, although in the U.S. the first customers for chips were, uh, were government customers, NASA uh, and the military, by the 1970s, so a decade or two after the first chips began to be marketed, um, most... Uh, most ships were being bought by the consumer sector, by corporate computers or by calculators or um, other consumer devices, which meant that there was a vast consumer market that was funding R&D into next generation ships. The Soviet Union had none of that. There was basically no consumer market. The military was the only customer. So the amount of dollars or rubles, if you will, going into R&D was just that much lower because you didn't have this consumer market subsidizing um, all the R&D in the Soviet Union. That's one. The second reason which in my mind makes semiconductors interesting because they're kind of unique is that the rate of improvement in ships over the past um, now half century uh, which we refer to as moore's law colloquially has been so much faster than the rate of improvement in almost any other sector of the economy and if you look at productivity improvement in the manufacturing of cars that improves by a couple percentage points a year and has fairly steadily for the past half century productivity improvements for manufacturing tables and chairs or glasses and dishware, almost anything we produce, a couple percentage points a year is a pretty good uh, rate of productivity improvement. But for chips, we're used to doubling computing capacity every couple of years. Um, And that makes it so much harder to keep up because you've got to be racing ahead at that rate every single year or you fall not just behind but very quickly fall orders of magnitude behind (laughs) and and that's hard to get your head around because most of our life is not characterized by uh, doubling every couple of years Uh, but it makes chip industry uh, unique and extraordinarily difficult to keep up in and that's something the Soviets were never able to get their head around so they could copy really effectively but they'd copy something and by the time they'd gotten through the copying they'd be a couple years behind so uh, this copying mentality which was built into the Soviet system. It was so bad that uh, the Soviets, although they used the metric system for most measurements, they had semiconductor machinery that was measured in inches because they were copying American ships that measured in inches. Uh, And if you were focused on copying, you could copy very, very effectively. um, But the time it took you to copy meant you were always behind. And that's Mm -hmm. the problem the Soviet Union faced. That's amazing.
0: That last part echoes the current sort of tech trade-off between the US and China largely as
1: well, doesn't it? That's right. You know, there's some similarities and some differences. The, the copying question is obviously there. The, the key difference is that the Chinese have a vast consumer market, which the Soviets um, never had. And so I think the question is, uh, will that benefit make the Chinese a lot better at, um, at building advanced semiconductors than the Soviets ever were?
0: There's nothing quite as unnatural to the human brain to sort of comprehend as exponential growth is there. And in this case, it's exponential shrink. You say that you get left behind even if you're just one small order of magnitude off. Um, It's interesting that you explain the difference just literally being the incentives of innovation. The Soviet Union was just incentivized to create the best military output possible, whereas it sounds like the states had the economic incentive and therefore that was actually the key difference. It wasn't a question of physics capability
1: or anything like that. Right, and, and the Soviet Union had a great reputation for excellent theoretical physics, and indeed when Jack Kilby, who was uh, one of the two inventors of the integrated circuit in the United States, when he was awarded the Nobel Prize, uh, he actually shared the prize with a Russian a Soviet physicist uh, who had done some fundamental work on how semiconductors can emit light. Um, so there was great physics expertise in the Soviet Union, and universities like Moscow State University had excellent physicists. That wasn't the problem, but one of the things that's striking about the chip industry is that although there's a lot of science that goes into it in terms of you've got to have a lot of phds working in your facilities um, it's actually not science that pushes the industry forward it's it's engineering um, which is something fundamentally different uh, and no amount of theorizing can make a difference unless you can prototype it and then unless you can learn to mass produce it and that the prototyping and the mass producing are are not really about science they're informed by your education and electrical engineering or physics or whatever you're educated in if you're working at a chip company, but it's it's engineering and mass production that are the really the real things that kind of drive the industry forward. Hold on to the mass producing thought for later because I, th-
0: I have a good anecdote from when I was speaking to Yoss, explaining exactly that. That's actually the source that makes ASML so good, not necessarily their innovations in getting the ability to print light smaller and smaller and smaller. It's the ability to do it at scale, consistently, with confidence. Um, before we move on to that, though, I'd just love to hear you give an explanation for why the Soviet Union had such an extraordinary output of physicists, because it seems like all the incentives were operating against it, yet nonetheless, you know, famously, they were
1: geniuses. You know, I don't know what the right answer to that question is. I, I, think, um, I think there are a couple of hypotheses I put forward, but with without super high confidence that this is the right answer. I think one is that the Soviet educational system uh, preferenced uh, a strong background in mathematics and in science, so that I think gave people a strong foundation. Um, I think if you were really smart in the Soviet Union uh, and you had a choice, do you apply your uh, intelligence in science or do you apply your intelligence in some sort of practical field? Well, practical fields were kind of uh, not very rewarding in the Soviet Union in many ways. You weren't going to become a millionaire. Uh, there was just no way to do that. You could get involved in politics, but politics was a pretty messy business in the Soviet Union, whereas science was, I think, for a lot of people, seen as a sort of way they could use their minds in interesting ways without getting too involved in, in the practical side of things, um, which was you know, tragic for the entire country that you had lots of smart people who were only theorizing and not applying. Um, but I think that that is why you had so many smart theoretical physicists and other types of scientists in the Soviet Union.
0: That's actually fascinating. It's Your explanation simply just comes down to so many people who would have otherwise applied their brilliance and genius to, say, the pursuit of income. They would have just moved country like the classic brain drain, like so many fantastic countries do. Um, Instead, they just picked what was the safest career option or something like that.
1: And if you look at Russia today where there's... No restrictions on emigration. You see so many smart Russians move abroad precisely for that region. That was yeah. impossible in the Soviet Union in most cases.
0: Fascinating. Yeah. Same modern, um, modern today, the same with the Ukraine. Um, much of Europe's software development is off the backs of Ukrainians.
1: <laughs> yep. Well, that's a, a legacy of that educational system, I think. Hmm.
0: Well, then, before we dive into the geopolitics of it all, because uh, perhaps we should mention, uh, because I suppose I won't have much information to draw upon in the introduction, you're writing a book. When's it due to be published? And then what's
1: the subject going to be? So the book is titled Chip War, the struggle for the world's most critical technology, which is going to be a history of how the computer chip has shaped the global economy and shaped international politics and military power. It'll be published in October of this year. Um, and so I'm right now putting the finishing touches on it, um, sort of as we speak.
0: I suppose the last year maybe caused you to rewrite a few chapters.
1: Well, it's funny. I, I started this in 2019. Uh, and when I did, my colleagues said, you're writing a book about what? About, <laughs> we, we know what computer chips are, but, uh, this sounds very obscure, Chris. Uh, and over the past, uh, two years, I'd say with a, the geopolitical factors coming to the forefront and b the semiconductor shortage, I I've ended up getting pretty lucky with, with the timing in some ways. Um, but you know, I think the other, the other thing about this topic is that although my colleagues asked me three years ago you know, why this topic, in fact, the fact that everyone used to ask that question shows just how little we understood about how dependent we were on transistors. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the number of transistors the average person touches a day uh, is, is in the many, many billions. Um, and we have no idea that we're doing that. There's nothing else that we touch in such great quantity that we are totally ignorant of uh, impacting our daily lives. If you boil down
0: modernity to first principles, you could make a very strong argument that the most important physical input is the semiconductor, the microchip. And just for the jargon's sake, that's what we're talking about here, right? Transistor, microchip, semiconductor.
1: I think that the other way to think about it is if if the first part of the 20th century was the age of steel or the age of oil, the kind of industrial commodities, you know, today we're in the age of silicon. There's just no doubt about it. Um, most of the um, most of our work takes place on silicon. Uh, most of our entertainment now involves uh, semiconductors producing entertainment for us. It's just impossible to imagine modern life without it. Yeah. So clearly, the sort of sexy part of this narrative
0: is the geopolitics tcms taiwan the supply chain fragility all the rest but before we dive into it really the most impressive part of the story is the complexity that goes into creating these chips and just how how remarkable a feat of humanity it is that they're being made so um jos benshop made the argument and he's the vp of technology at asml which I suppose I would encourage the audience to do their own research, but ASML is essentially the company that allows microchips with little debate either side. But um, he makes the claim that the EUV machine, which creates uh, the most complex microchips, is the most complex machine ever made by humans. It's more complex than the best rocket ship, the best satellite, the best bomb, the best gun. I don't know what other feats of technology there are, but... He makes the argument that it is the most complex machine ever made by humans. And that alone needs to be celebrated and spoken about. So talk to me about that. What goes into making a computer chip?
1: Yeah, I think, I think that's probably right about EUV. The, the, the striking thing about EUV to me is that that's just one step in thousands of steps you need to make a microchip. Um, so it, at its base, a microchip is a piece of silicon in most cases or other materials you can use with lots of transistors carved into that. Now what's a transistor? It's a circuit that's either on or off. Um, when it's on, it creates a one. When it's off, it creates a zero. And if you take apart the software on your computer, there's uh, millions and millions of ones and zeros that it all runs on. Um, and so anything that we're doing on a computer or any sort of electronic device requires lots of ones and zeros to run. And all those ones and zeros are expressed by tiny circuits on a piece of silicon going on and off. Um, and when chips were first made in the 1960s, they had a handful of transistors, a dozen or maybe a 100 on them. Today, you buy a new iPhone and it has over 10 billion uh, transistors on just its, its main chips. So the numbers are sort of mind-boggling. Um, if you want to think about the size of a transistor today, uh, the most advanced transistors are smaller than a coronavirus, um, a fraction the size of a mitochondria, um, it's, they're so small that it's sort of hard to conceptualize how small they are, but we can see them with uh, certain types of electron microscopes. Uh, and when you get an image of a, a single transistor on an electron microscope today, you not only see the transistor, you see dots that are the individual atoms making it up, because the transistors are so small that uh, they're, they're almost atomic scale in terms of the, the components thus far. Um, so a, a handful of nanometers is the, the, the length of certain features on transistors. Um, and, uh, today's chips, uh, either, uh, generally compute something. They're logic chips or processor chips, or they remember something, uh, they store ones and zeros over time, or they convert some sort of real world, um, signal like an image or a sound into, uh, ones and zeros. So those are the three basic categories of chips. And if you buy a new phone or a computer, it'll have all three of those chips, uh, in different quantities in them. And so to make one of these, should I go into making one of these right now? After this comment, um,
0: that's the best explanation I've actually ever heard of a microchip because it is just so counterintuitive. I sort of just leave it to a technician. It requires lots of study to sort of understand what that means. But I think that's a terrific explanation and it also highlights why computing power has gotten so much better, why our computers run faster, why we can run more programs with high definition, etc cetera, etc. Cetera. It's because literally those ones and zeros are just being
1: enabled to be computed faster or more efficiently i would suppose that's right yeah and and when we think of computing power you know before i started this research i thought of computing power as something that sort of emerged from devices or even from software Um, but basically computing power is just the number of ones and zeros you have access to the number of transistors you have access to Uh, and thankfully it's it's doubled every two years so we've got a doubling of computing power for two years
0: And so that makes a very interesting sort of conundrum because if we take it for granted, or at least assume that the promise of Moore's law is going to continue, that means whatever the 10 billion um, transistors we might've access to now is going to square in 48 months. And that's the power of exponential. It gets out of hand very, very quickly. And so I forget off the top of my head, but I think Yoss said they'd be down to the atom by 2040 or 2050, which means literally printing light at the accuracy of an atom. Can you go smaller than an atom? It's like a very fascinating question of physics and a challenge for obviously the engineers and scientists involved. But that's an also interesting point to this geopolitical question. We assume that our computing power is just going to get better and better and better and better according to how we've understood it in the past. But there is a very real possibility we hit a wall at 2040. And then what does that do to the progression of technology around us and all the big questions that come from that?
1: Well, that, that's right. Moore's law isn't actually a law. It's a prediction um, that was first predicted by Gordon Moore, the co-founder of Intel in 1965. And he actually changed the the prediction over time. So at first he was getting doubling every year, then he changed it to doubling every two years. Um, in the past couple of years, it seems to have slowed a bit further. Uh, and yeah, there's no guarantee that uh, even by 2030, it might, have, might not um, slow down. I, I think what we can say is that there are certainly physical limits to how far we can go down the current pathway of shrinking transistors. At some point, we're going to get to one atom, uh, and you can't get to half of an atom, at least in any sort of way that we we understand today. Um, But we can also say that right now, uh, there is more money than ever and more smart minds than ever trying to figure out uh, new ways to deal with these issues. And there's there's not just one process underway. It's not just shrinking transistors. There are multiple different ways you can shrink them. You can stack them three-dimensionally. You can organize them in different ways. You can use, use new materials. So there's lots of different ways where we're going to make incremental improvements. And when you add up all those incremental improvements in the past, that's what's gotten you the exponential increase in Moore's Law. Um, so it's not as though we're relying just on one discovery. We're relying on every year substantial improvements across the supply chain, which when you add them all up, they've delivered Moore's Law in the past. And because of that, I think I'm more confident than I'd otherwise be uh, that we're going to keep getting improvements. At what rate? Hard to say. But the thesis that progress just grinds to a halt seems implausible, given all the resources we've got in terms of brain power, in terms of finances to find the discoveries that we're going to need for the next generation. So take us into
0: then what goes into making these chips.
1: So today, the, the challenge of making a chip is making transistors that are so small. Uh, it's not like you can take uh, your standard machine tools and dig out a hole in the silicon um, and, and, and fill it in with the materials you need. Um, transistors are made um, by etching um, holes into silicon and then putting depositing certain metals or other material into the holes in the right amounts That's a sort at of- incomprehensible scales of smallness
0: yeah because you explain it like that i feel like oh that's a microscopic machine making little indents like no it's beyond our comprehension of small small
1: scale yeah that's right, and if you think of a, a silicon wafer, which is uh, that most wafers are 12 inches today are the, the most modern wafers, they've got, it depends on the size of the chip, but call it a couple dozen chips on them, and each of those chips will have a billion or two billion or five billion transistors. So on a wafer, you're talking uh, many billions of transistors, and, and you process them all, um, generally speaking, simultaneously. So when you do a process step, it's got to have an effect on all of the transistors at the same time. Uh, and your margin for error is limited. Uh, you can't have five percent or ten percent or twenty percent of the transistors not a- operate the right way. And because you're you've got transistors that are a couple nanometers or a couple dozen nanometers uh, in in um, in size, you don't have much scope for error. Um, so you've got to have these ultra perfect manufacturing processes that can produce transistors by the tens and hundreds of billions, uh, almost flawlessly. And that's, you know, understandably really hard to do, which is why there's uh, just a couple of companies that know how to make the machines to do it, that have the specialized materials and ultra pure gases, and then that know how to actually put all these different pieces together, which is what the actual chip making companies do um, in their fabs. And, and because this is so hard, it's, it's required this vast supply chain to actually make it possible if if it were easier you could have more simple supply chains but i when i listen to people say well let's let's onshore the semiconductor supply chain to country x or country y i say you know do you have any idea what you're talking about and how hard uh this is to do who do you know that can uh that can produce you know 10 billion transistors uh with 99 percent accuracy on a single silicon wafer well there's one company in the world that can do step y or step z um and that's the challenge today is doing it with perfect accuracy So
0: go a bit further into it. Really uh, romanticize the ingenious complexity of the EUV machine. Could you try and take us into what it takes to do that at scale consistently? I'll just say one quick anecdote. Yoss explained what 10 nanometers was to me by saying, look at your fingernail for three seconds and that's 10 nanometers. So printing to that accuracy, like you said, um, with very low margins of error hour on hour on hour every day without fail. It's, it's again, it's up to technicians to understand how complex that is. But please, if you could explain that.
1: Okay, so a silicon wafer, we need the most pure silicon uh, you can imagine uh, to produce a silicon wafer. Then, uh, Which is sand. Which is, which is sand at its core. That's right. Very, very expensive, complicated sand. Uh, so you, you take this silicon wafer Um, and then there's a series of steps of, uh, of lithography and and the way you do lithography is you cover it with a chemical, the wafer with a chemical, uh, that reacts, um, to light or to ultraviolet light in this case. Um, and then you shine a pattern of light, um, onto the wafer. Um, and you need this pattern of light because, uh, it will react with the chemicals in the exact pattern that you shine on it. And then we'll let you carve out that pattern onto the chip. Um, So to use extreme ultraviolet light, which is the the type of light that we now use for most advanced ships, um, is complex because it's very, very hard to produce extreme ultraviolet light in the power uh, that we need to actually react with the chemical uh, and uh, on the wafer. And so to do this requires... Um, some of the most complicated machinery on Earth. It requires the flattest mirror humans have ever made. It requires these extraordinary systems that hold, um, hold uh, mirrors stable because any tiny movement in the mirror will uh, reflect the light in a different way. And it requires an ultra-powerful laser to start. Um, and so the laser is made by a company called Trumpf in Germany, um, which then shoots a laser uh, and pulverizes a tiny ball of tin uh, to... Uh, several hundred thousand degrees Fahrenheit. Um, it does this uh, tens of thousands of times a second. And the numbers are just kind of mind-boggling. EUV is emitted. Uh, this extreme ultraviolet light is emitted. It's collected by mirrors. And the mirrors themselves um, are, are, are complicated because uh, extreme ultraviolet light is sort of like an x-ray. It goes through most materials like an x-ray does. It'll go through your body. Um, so you need specialized mirrors to actually reflect this type of light. And so the mirrors themselves are made of uh, layers of two different types of materials that are themselves a couple of atoms thick. So ev- every piece of this machine is sort of an engineering marvel. Anyway, you collect the light, uh, you you shine it, um, or you reflect it off of the pattern you want, eventually reflected, uh, on the wafer, and then it's shined onto the wafer. Then you've got the reaction once the light hits the wafer with the chemicals you put down. Then you can... Um, so, and where the light hits the chemicals, they'll uh, the chemicals will often um, will, will react one way. Where the light doesn't hit, the chemicals will be in their initial um, initial state. And then you can use other chemicals to wash away um, the chemicals that weren't struck by light, and you'll be left with a pattern on the wafer. Um, and this pattern will be in the shape of certain of the transistors that you want. Then there's additional steps. You then etch um, holes into the um, into the wafer by using additional types of plasmas that you uh, expose the wafer to. And the plasma will react with the, the silicon, create the holes you need um, <coughs> in the silicon, and then you can wash this all away with different chemicals. And this process is repeated time after time. So there's often um, a thousand or 2000 steps in, <coughs> excuse me, um, in the creation of, a, of an individual wafer.
0: I love the anecdote that you gave in the uh, Bloomberg uh, interview about how amazing we're talking about ASML specifically here, but I I suppose the same anecdote could be made for a lot of the sort of Supreme chip manufacturers, but just how sophisticated the supply chain is. And you mentioned there, that piece of glass, which is in itself a remarkable feat of engineering, the flattest material ever created by human beings. Um, I just want to again, emphasize it's exponential shrink it's types of scale and accuracy that is it boggles the human mind. It's so impossible to appreciate that little anecdote you gave about the tin. It's again, you know, um, I encourage anyone listening to go to the ASML website and try and look at their sort of animation of how this works, because it's impossible to appreciate until you are sort of just smacked in the face with it. Wait a minute. You have 10,000 drops of tin, actual tin going across a surface that a laser shoots into it perfect accuracy to then create all of these reactions of light that then prints onto a, a wafer that whilst may look thin has this stabilizing mechanism added underneath the, mach- the the temperature in the machine has to be kept to within a thousandth of one degree because any margin of error is going to fuck things up it's heavy machinery moving yet somehow you've stabilized everything it's crazy it's
1: just unbelievable well, I think the the craziest thing is it would be one thing to have this happen once or once a week or once a month, but it's operating constantly, 24 hours a day, uh, flawlessly, or close to flawlessly. Um, and, and that, I think, is the, the the really striking feature. And that's the difference between science and engineering, in, in my view, because scientists can do a cool experiment once or maybe a dozen times and prove the result what they want. But that's not what this is. This is about producing something that is going to be reliable enough that a company would will be willing to spend $150 million on it and put it in their facility and bet their $20 billion uh, fab on it. Uh, and so it's got to work almost all the time.
0: So Yoss says it's the most complex machine ever, but I think he's quite biased in that biased. opinion since he was one of its creators. <laughs> yeah. What do you think? Is the EUV machine the most complex machine ever created by humans?
1: I, it's it's certainly up there. If, if you look at just one of the key components, so the laser that goes in the EUV machine, the laser alone has 457,000 component parts just for the laser. Um,
0: did you say 457,000?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the numbers are wild. Um, yeah. and these aren't just sort of off the shelf parts. Many of the parts inside the laser are themselves engineering challenges. Um, so it's, it's sort of an onion in terms of you peel it and you find another engineering challenge, um, below it. I think if you look at a 747 airliner, you'll find that I believe the number is 6 million components, uh, in one of those. So the number of uh, the number of other uh, things you can compare ev to is very small maybe you can compare it to a 747 which also operate basically flawlessly uh, flying around the world uh, but that that must be just about um, just about it i i struggle to think of anything else that's um, that's close and if you look at the price tag of an UV machine 150 million dollars plus or minus um, you know that gives you a sense of uh, just how much complexity we're talking about because there's not many things that uh, cost that much for a manufactured good that you can buy off the shelf.
0: Fascinatingly enough, as well, I think you also said this in the Bloomberg interview. They only sell a few hundred or thousand machines per year, um, right? Right.
1: Yeah, I think it was a couple hundred um, last year, uh, and obviously they're trying to ramp up to to meet demand. Um, but the precision you need, it's it's difficult to do mass pre- mass production and precision like that simultaneously. I, th- I think the other factor is that. If, if I were to give you a UV machine, you know, you or I wouldn't have any clue what to do with it. There's not an on you press and started producing. You need to train your personnel um, and, uh, and have your machine op- uh, kind of optimized to your specific um, factory. So that alone is, is a, 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 an education process that companies need to um, sort it out. So it's not just can you produce enough machines, it's also can you train enough people to know how to use them effectively.
0: Yeah, if we take a TSMC, I always get the acronym wrong, but the fab in Taiwan, ASML has full-time employees positioned there. They chartered a private flight with extremely complex transporting mechanisms to get it over there. The installation is itself a multi-million-dollar process. The type of um, clean rooms that's required. Um, the, the whole thing is, uh, yeah, truly amazing, which does uh, lead us into the geopolitics, I think, quite neatly. But before we go there, can you distinguish between the different types of chips? Because what we've just been speaking about is the highest end, you know, the MacBook, the iPhone, etc. but not all chips are created equal. So could you give us a lay of the land, chips in total?
1: So generally speaking, the way you talk about uh, how advanced the chip is is by referring to the, um, the node that it's produced at. And a node is referred to as a number of nanometers. So today, the most advanced are five nanometer. And uh, next year, it'll be three nanometers that TSMC is producing. Um, and in the past, the node referred to a specific length on the transistor. Today, transistors are actually 3D in their structure. So the node is just sort of a marketing name. At this point but um, you you know how advanced a transit uh, of a chip is based on the the node level the smaller the node the more advanced um, that it is and so the most advanced chips are produced on the smaller nodes because you get more transistors per square inch and more computing power um, as a result so for your phone for your computer also for your data center if you're running a lot of ai workloads you want the most advanced chip you can get but for a lot of things, uh, you don't necessarily need a whole lot of computing power. In your car, for example, there's um, dozens of chips that are managing uh, the window going up and down or a fuel injection into your engine. Um, and that's that's a relatively straightforward process where computing power isn't that intensive. Um, so there's plenty of demand today, not only for the most advanced, which we obviously need for um, the devices that I mentioned, but also for the, the less advanced, um, because we're still using more and more of these less advanced chips on a regular basis as well. And especially as things like cars and industry get more and more computerized, uh, require more computing power, they're going to be drawing more heavily on on these uh, lagging edge nodes as they're referred to in the industry. How about some numbers? Um, How many chips go where? So we can say about dollar value pretty straightforwardly. About a quarter of the dollar value just produced a year go into phones. Um, So phones are extraordinarily chip intensive because there's not only the main processor that's gonna run your operating system, there's a chip that manages the camera, one that manages the Bluetooth, the cell phone connection, the battery, Um, there's a memory chip. Um, You'll often find um, uh, a dozen or uh, even up to 20 chips in a typical phone. Um, Computers are slightly less important than phones uh, in terms of uh, the number of chips that go there. Uh, data centers are growing very rapidly in terms of their demand as we have big cloud computing companies uh, grow out their data centers. You know, a data center is basically a, a massive building full of chips. That's what a, that's what a data center is. Uh, so these massive facilities stocked full of the most advanced chips that we can produce. And then when you look at other markets like autos, aviation, they're really quite small in terms of dollar value. Um, five or 10 percentage points in total of, of chips by dollar value will go into um, a car or, or, um, or a, an industrial use, for example. But for, for the auto sector in particular, where we've seen the most chip shortages of the past year, the challenge is that if you've got a car, you need every single one of those chips in the car to be present. Even if you're only missing a 99 cent chip, your car might not work. Uh, and so because cars are big complicated pieces of machinery that have a bunch of different chips in them, over the last year, or 18 months, we've seen a lot of car factories halted because they couldn't get a $2 chip that managed the fuel injection into the, um, into, the, into the engine. And for chip makers in Taiwan and elsewhere, car companies haven't been that important because they're, they pay relatively low dollar for their chips, uh, a couple dollars versus a couple hundred dollars for an advanced data center chip. Uh, and so that's why we've seen the most news stories about auto chip shortages, even though for chip makers, auto's a second tier market in most cases
0: interesting i was under the impression that tcms only produced the highest end of chips but do they have a range they're producing them all they do yeah and
1: if you think of the the business model for a a chip maker um, you you build a a new set of manufacturing facilities every two years or so for each new node that you produce but your older factories are still um, completely functional Uh, and so it's actually the lagging edge ones yeah, that are the most profitable because you've already paid down the cost of your equipment, which is the expensive true. part, and it's just pure profit.
0: Mm. Well, that brings us then naturally to where they are produced. So we've hinted at Taiwan. That's the that's the granddad. That's the dragon of the industry. But uh, take us into where they are geographically. And also, if you could also comment on how sophisticated they are and maybe how big they are.
1: <laughs> so to, to do this, I think we want to distinguish not only between how advanced the chips are, but also types of chips. Um, So if you look at processor chips or logic chips, which would go into your phone, your computer, your data center, um, distinguish those from memory chips, um, which also go into phones, computers, and data centers, but do different things. Processors, process data, memory chips, remember data. Um, Memory chips are disproportionately produced in Korea. There's two Korean firms, uh, Samsung and SK Hynix, that um, are the two biggest producers of memory chips. Um, The rest of the memory um, chip, uh, output is produced a bit in Japan, a bit in Singapore, a bit in the United States, um, and a bit in China by Korean companies. Uh, but the, the Korea is sort of the center of the memory chip, um, world, if you will. Um, for logic chips, um, it's different. Most logic chips are produced by foundries, which is a, a type of company that only does manufacturing. So you'll design your chip, you'll bring it to the foundry, the foundry will manufacture it for you. There's one big exception uh, to that, and that's Intel, uh, the US company that makes chips for computers and for data centers, and Intel produces most of its own chips in-house. So they'll both design and manufacture their own chips. Um, Intel's production is mostly in the US and Europe and Israel, um, but for um, chips that are designed by different companies and produced in a foundry, most of the world's foundry capacity is in East Asia and especially in Taiwan. Um, Taiwan has over half of the world's foundry market and TSMC is the the giant um, right there. So not only does TSMC produce the most advanced chips in the logic segment but they've also got by far the most capacity anyone else in the market. And so if you're a company like AMD, Qualcomm, NVIDIA, um, big chip designers, Um, in the US, you've basically got no choice but to rely on TSMC for at least a big chunk of your production because no one else has the capacity uh, and the technological uh, capability to actually do it. Mm.
0: Wow. And that just perfectly explains the geopolitical mess of it all. Um, What about China? Because there's lots of chat about, you know, them, I suppose, you know, monopolizing or cannibalizing. I don't know what the right term would be, but there's a lot of chat about them taking a lot of that demand and uh, producing it there themselves because obviously they can afford it, I suppose. like The economics doesn't have to be extremely supply-demand sensitive. They're happy to take a loss if it means they get some sort of geopolitical power
1: uh, as a trade-off. So right, right now, China actually plays a pretty small role in the fabrication of chips and of the chip supply chain as a whole, but it's changing rapidly. And so it's easy to see how in a decade, China could be a, a much bigger player. Um, if you look at ch- uh, chip fabrication in China, what you'll find is that uh, there's no Chinese firm that's anywhere close to TSMC in terms of technology um, or in terms of um, capacity at more advanced nodes. So China produces a fair number of um, low technology, older chips, um, but not much that's in the cutting edge space. Um, And China's also quite. Yes, and and this has been a kind of long term focus of the Chinese government uh, to change this, but it's really hard to change because even if you catch up to where TSMC was four years ago, TSMC is four years ahead of that point right now. Um, And so the best Chinese company in this regard is a company called SMIC based in in Shanghai, um, which has made some pretty good efforts but is still pretty decisively behind where uh, TSMC or. Um, or other firms uh, would be. Now, this is going to begin to change, at least in terms of capacity, because China's government is pouring money into um, subsidizing the build-out of capacity um, of of chip makers in China, but capacity is different from advanced production. And so I think it's undeniable that China will produce more chips uh, in 10 years than it does today. I think it's still very unclear whether China will produce relatively more advanced chips than it does Today certainly it will advance, but I think Taiwan might advance faster than China does. Um, and so right now we have a situation where China spends more money importing chips than it does oil. China is the world's largest chip importer no of any way. country. The numbers are, That's such are mind-boggling. A good
0: stop.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's in the hundreds of billions of dollars a year China spends importing semiconductors um, from wow. from South Korea, from Taiwan, from Malaysia, uh, from other countries in in Southeast Asia. Um, and that looks unlikely to change in the short term, because even if China is completely successful in building out its own capability to produce a lot of low-tech chips, it's still going to rely on Taiwan for the most advanced chips.
0: Okay, so if chips are so important that they're outstripping the demand, the the, the if they're outstripping the cost of energy, can you please help me understand why then it's not possible for, say, the U.S., the biggest country in the uh, biggest economy in the world, China, um, etc., to onshore this type of manufacturing. How can we explain why TSMC is so far ahead and why no one else can catch up?
1: Well, I think it's just largely a cost of of money, um, which is to say that you know, TSMC is has plans to spend a hundred billion dollars building new chip facilities over the next couple of years, and. I believe the latest number is $40 billion this year. Um, so if you wanted to replicate what TSMC's got, you need to spend you know, that amount of money for years on end just to get to where they are today. And then you need to outspend them once you've actually caught up to them. Um, so it's just very, very difficult to do. Now, some countries have roughly comparable capabilities. So if you look at the US, Intel is behind TSMC, but only a little bit behind. Um, so Intel could plausibly in five years catch up, hard to say. Um, Samsung in South Korea could plausibly catch up to TSMC or even overtake it, hard to say. But if you're starting from scratch, wow, really? um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I would bet against TSMC, but you could imagine TSMC slipping up and somebody else uh, jumping ahead. But but it's not going to be someone you've never heard of because if you're starting from scratch, you've got to build up an extraordinary amount of knowledge. It's capital intensive, um, and it's it's just something you can't uh, invent overnight. TSMC has now had um, almost 35 uh, years building up its expertise. And you know, one of the secrets of TSMC in the early days is that TSMC was uh, founded by a bunch of Texas Instruments executives. Um, and Morris Chang, the, uh, the founder of TSMC, um, spent his career uh, in Texas working at Texas Instruments, um, where he developed, he actually kind of built the chip industry in Texas in many ways um, before moving to Taiwan. What a legend. You know, it's an extraordinary, extraordinary um, story. And, and You've got this this refugee from communist China, uh, enrolls at Harvard, the only Chinese person in his class, uh, wants to study Shakespeare, but decides that there's uh, no career prospects for him in English literature, so (laughs) so transfers to engineering. um, And then is present um, at Texas Instruments, basically at the time when they're inventing the first uh, integrated circuit, the first chip, builds up the industry in Texas, and then no one else in the world has a better understanding the industry than Morris Chang when he moves to Taiwan in 1985 um, it's not like he's starting from scratch this is the expert uh, among everyone in the world in doing so and so if if Taiwan had hired anyone else they wouldn't have made nearly as much progress uh, than they did thanks to hiring Morris Chang
0: what a wonderful story of serendipity you can't predict a a future of infinite possibilities based off a finite experience of the past it's uh those sort of things are so amazing um, help me understand why it's so expensive because you just said up to $40 billion a year, and potentially if someone wanted to enter the industry, they'd have to catch up. So drop a ball. Uh, so ballpark 200 billion plus potentially, I'm not sure. Um, the EV machine, I think is like 150 million euros. So it, just for one of them. Okay. So is this, please explain why it's so expensive just to help me understand where all these costs are coming from, because that's a big escalation there.
1: So if you build a, a modern fab, you got to put modern equipment in it, um, which means not just one EUV machine, but multiple. So uh, TSMC will have um, a handful of EUV uh, tools in each of its fabs, which will cost, call it $20 billion each. But it's not just an EV machine. You need Deposition machines, you need etching machines, you need metrology machines that will let you identify individual errors on a silicon wafer. Um, and when you add up the cost of all this tooling, uh, it's enormously expensive—several billion dollars just for the fab. Um, the buildings themselves that um, you produce semiconductors in are also um, quite complicated. You need the purest air you can imagine because a single particle of dust can cause all sorts of uh, difficulties. You need the ultimate and earthquake proofing. Um, because just as the machinery uh, and the EV machine has to be held totally still, the rest of the fab has to be totally still um, yeah. as well. So, um, you know, it's, it, these are arguably the most expensive factories ever produced. And each time TSMC builds a new facility, it's, it's, the, it's again the most expensive factory ever produced because it's more expensive than the previous one. Um, because there's so much complicated tooling in them and because the um, environment has to be so pristine to actually make chips mm. uh, effectively. In your
0: estimation, as someone who has done the deepest dive potentially of any journalist or author in history of this subject, how possible is it that within five to 10 years, we see a shift away from TSMC being the dominant producer and a strong presence in the United States, potentially Europe, potentially China? How
1: do you see it playing out? I think it's very possible that TSMC in 10 years is not considered the manufacturing leader. Um, we've over the past decade, we've seen companies slip up. You know, Intel used to be uh, the the company that everyone wanted to beat. Uh, Intel was founded by the guy who invented Moore's Law. Uh, it still is enormously profitable, and yet it slipped up over the past five years. So there's no reason why TSMC couldn't do the same. If I had to bet, I'd bet they'd keep doing a pretty good job at executing. But it's certainly possible. Um, But if anyone's going to catch up to TSMC, it's going to be a company that we know of today um, because of this prior investment you got to do. So I think Samsung and Intel are the only two two potential competitors. If you look in Europe, there's just no one in Europe that's done the investment in this type of chip making to get anywhere close. Um, And China would love to be close, but uh, right now it seems extraordinarily difficult to imagine how China would be able to get close or to be allowed to buy the machinery that you need. Because right now, um, because of Dutch government regulations and US government pressure, you're not allowed to ship a UV machine to China, for example.
0: No, really? The Dutch dropping the hammer. Good on them. I mean, well, good on them. I'm projecting too much of my uh, politics into this, but... Yeah, I suppose it's worthwhile having sort of sanctions and some things like that. So, okay, that introduces perfectly the sort of geopolitics of it all. And the story that you just told is one of extraordinary extraordinary fragility on several manufacturers in East Asia, which is far away from the biggest economy in the world, the United States, the biggest emerging economy, the continent of Africa. How can we explain this fragility? Taiwan is not even its own sovereign country and South Korea has enemies to its north and to its uh, west. And I suppose Japan could be an ally of sorts, but that's two very precariously placed um, locations for what is, you could make a very strong argument for, the most important component to modernity.
1: I think you're right. And if we were redoing history, I think we would not accept a situation where we had so much concentration of, of risk in this part of the world. I think it's inevitable we get concentration uh, because the industry is, requires such capital intensivity. Um, there's been a trend towards <coughs> monopolization or creating oligopolies in certain types of sp- parts of the supply chain. We see it in lithography, there's one company that makes EV tools and there won't be another one, uh, but that's not the only part of the industry. Um, there's um, there's there's numerous parts of the supply chain where there are one or maybe a handful of firms uh, that basically control their sliver of the supply chain and I think this trend towards concentration in the chip industry is to a certain extent inevitable um, but why did this end up being concentrated uh, so much in Asia well, to understand that you got to look back to the earliest days of the chip industry um, so when Uh, Bob Noyce and Gordon Moore founded Fairchild Semiconductor, which is kind of thought of as the first startup in Silicon Valley. Uh, They founded it in the late 1950s. Uh, They were immediately faced with the problem of how do you get enough workers to assemble chips? So once you've fabricated a chip, you need to have someone stick the wires on it that then go from the chip to the rest of the device, for example. And that was always a laborious process. And so they hired uh, workers from California, but they uh, quickly discovered that they could pay people one-tenth of those wages in Hong Kong And so from its earliest days early 1960s um, Fairchild had opened a offshoring facility in Hong Kong uh, And from that point onwards every chip company in the United States had offshore production facilities uh, And when you started having chip firms in uh, Europe and Japan grow after that uh, They too started offshoring to East Asia and the the cheapest labor. In the most organized fashion was Hong Kong, Singapore, um, Korea, Taiwan, uh, Malaysia, uh, which is why you've got this focus on East Asian supply chains today.
0: Talk to me a little bit more about the geopolitics. And forgive me if I'm belaboring the point, beleaguering, not sure what the word is. But if Taiwan was without TSMC, how much would
1: the US really care about Taiwan? Well, you know, I think if you look at the U.S.-Taiwan relationship, what you'll find is that the U.S. cared the most about Taiwan and was willing to spend the most defending Taiwan in the nineteen fifties when Taiwan was the least important to everyone. And in the nineteen fifties, we almost went to nuclear war with China over Taiwan um, during the first and second Taiwan Straits Crisis. Yeah, in the late fifties, and at that time, Taiwan was an impoverished island that was totally irrelevant.
0: Yeah, they'd just been. Um, they just had the
1: Chinese nationalists come in and sort of run it over, right? Yeah, That's right. That's right. Um, so I, I, think, I think the question of would the U.S. care about Taiwan still, I and mean, the answer is yes. But I think there's a, there's a different question that I'd ask, which is um, what would happen if things go wrong in the Taiwan Straits and you get some sort of military escalation between China and Taiwan or maybe something that brings in the, water, the wider region? Uh, And and there I think that in addition to being a disastrous war, which it could well be, and I worry about, you'd also have profoundly uh, tumultuous effects on the rest of the global economy. Because Taiwan produces around a third of the new computing power we rely on every year. And if that were to disappear, um, it would take over a decade to rebuild. And in the interim, we would have a third less ones and zeros on which to run every piece of software we want to run so smartphones mm-hmm. computers the telecom infrastructure autos airplanes dishwashers it'd be hard to buy almost anything the first year after uh, and i worry a lot that we're not prepared for that
0: talk to me about what you think is the likelihood or possibility of a genuine conflict that will disrupt the global supply chain more than it already has i'm not saying all-out war but in the realm of possibilities
1: well, I think it's, it's frighteningly possible. I, you know, if, it's easy to assume that because the situation in Taiwan has been relatively stable over the past two decades that it will stay stable. Um, but it was as recent as the 1990s that the Chinese shot missiles over Taiwan and the U.S. sailed an aircraft carrier through the Taiwan Straits to force the Chinese to stand down. Um, and it was only a couple decades ago that the Chinese were still regularly shelling um, islands that the Taiwanese control in, in the Taiwan Straits. Um, so I, I think we should be concerned. I, I look at Eastern Europe today and say, many people told me that we were done with warfare in Eastern Europe. And now I guess I look at the risk that we're about to enter a new one. And I think the same thing could well be true in Taiwan. And it doesn't have to even be the result of a deliberate escalation. It could be that one side decides to escalate, but it could also be that there's an accident um, happening. Two planes collide in the sky or two ships at sea and no one wants to admit they were at fault or back down. Any of those scenarios, I think, could lead to something really dangerous in political terms, but also in economic terms.
0: And so does that explain the last 12 months, the sort of geopolitical flare-up and attention to chips, the identification of just how fragile the global supply chain is because the majority of
1: the chips comes from this disputed island in the South China Sea? I think it's, it's partly that. There's another part of it as well, which is that the U.S. and and a lot of other countries, but I think the U.S. Has, has been particularly focused on this, is coming to realize that the next generation of economically crucial technologies and also militarily crucial technologies will depend on computing power. And so making sure that you've got an advantage in your ability to produce computing power is going to be important, not simply so you can have the best metaverse, but so you can have the best military too. Um, wow. And yeah. so the U.S. has historically tried to keep a couple generations ahead of China in semiconductor technology. And that was easy to do in the 1960s and 70s and 80s. That's getting harder to do now, which is why you've seen the U.S. try to impose more restrictions on the transfer of technology to China to make sure the U.S. has the technology it needs to keep its military edge.
0: That paints significant incentive for China to occupy Taiwan.
1: Well, the, the trick for China is that although it would love to own Taiwan... Um, the prospect of conquering Taiwan uh, would be difficult to do with the semiconductor facilities intact. Because if you if you start thinking about um, explosions occurring around an EUV machine, uh, it wouldn't take much to knock some of the ultra-precise um, uh, instruments out. So I, I, I struggle to imagine a scenario where you have fighting and TSMC's fabs remain intact. And it would only take one or two disgruntled engineers in Taiwan to um to sabotage the entire um uh situation if if in fact the chinese took over so i don't I don't worry as much about the chinese saying we're gonna invade to take over the fabs i worry more about the chinese saying we're gonna invade anyway because we want to control taiwan and in the process knocking out not only taiwan but also this this kind of crucial um node for the global economy mm. there's almost like a
0: the, there's another sort of idea of mutually assured destru- uh, destruction. <laughs> you know, if the engineer does decide to just sabotage things, it. Um... So I, I wonder, could you view TSMC as some sort of uh, you know military advantage? If so, it's like can be considered a weapon. If so, it's like a heroic act to say, well, I'm not going to let China get their hands on this, nor the US. I don't know. I
1: don't know. Yeah, well, and it's it's clear that the US wouldn't put it this way, but the US is trying to. Sort of weaponize, if you will, TSMC more now than ever in the past. It's been trying to cut off um, a number of Chinese firms from being able to produce chips at TSMC on the grounds that certain Chinese firms have produced chips for TSMC and then put them into Chinese military equipment. And um, in the past, the U.S. kind of turned a blind eye to that type of thing. Uh, now they're being much more tough and saying uh, we demand that TSMC produce chips for U.S. military equipment, but we don't want that happen to happen with Chinese military gear. Mm. Some, to return to something you
0: just said before if uh say tsmc was disrupted or you know ruined completely it might stifle um the progress it, it would it would just be this unbelievably disruptive event on the global supply chain um which really highlights another point which is that how important computing power is to the ongoing innovation of modernity and our technologies and just how much we really 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 rely on it could you just emphasize that point for us
1: yeah i think if you if you start to think about the number of devices you have that don't have semiconductors um it's it's there's very few devices that you rely on on a daily basis that don't have semiconductors um and And that's only going to increase because as communications get better, as it becomes possible to send more data through the airspace with 5G telecom technologies, the incentive to use uh, more computing power in more types of devices will only increase. Uh, And So we we talk about the Internet of Things, uh, phrases like that, but that's really just beginning right now. And I think if you look forward a decade, you're going to see more and more devices that are plugged into each other in terms of their ability to transfer data to one another, which means that they're going to have multiple types of chips in them, uh, some to process the data, some to remember the data, uh, some to transmit um, the data. And as we get more and more computing power in the same amount of space, thanks to Moore's law, it'll be possible to make uh, even simple devices smarter. Because right now, intelligence is, is complicated and it's expensive, but in two years, we're going to have twice the processing power, thanks to Moore's law and two years after that, twice the uh, same amount again. And so we're going to have smarter and smarter devices um, uh, across the, the, the scope of devices we're looking at. So um, I think we've only begun to think about what will autos look like in 10 years, for example. Um, today we think of autos as something that will drive us around town. Um, but if you look at the semiconductor content going into new cars, and especially the more advanced new cars like Teslas, uh, the number of transistors in a Tesla is extraordinary. Um, and I think we're only beginning to understand uh, what those will be used for going forward.
0: Take us into the future then. Four years, we've doubled computing power twice. How do you see chips affecting technology around us in a very tangible example?
1: A tangible example. Um, I mean, in some ways, we, we're so used to this process happening, we take it for granted. We take it for granted that everything will be better uh, in a couple of years' time, our our connections will be better. Our phones will have higher resolution cameras on them. the The entire thing, I think we've. I, I think, the the key thing that we're just beginning to roll out is the ability to have artificial intelligence um, present not just in vast data centers for co- things that companies make priority projects, but rather for all types of devices. So, um, we're going to have devices that are more focused on looking at what we do, learning from it, uh, and, um, and operating accordingly. And when we think of artificial intelligence, I, I think most of us think about algorithms. Uh, and then after algorithms, you think about data. Um, but in fact, what makes artificial intelligence possible to roll out at scale is computing power. Um, because the reality is we've got tons of data, more data than we know what to do with. And algorithms are something one can write, but the real limiting factor is, can you get enough processing power on your device to run whatever um, artificial intelligence application you want to run. And we're, we're right now getting to the point where the answer to the question is increasingly yes, that we've got the processing power so we can not only make our most advanced data centers smart and have them churn through lots of data, but we can also make our dishwashers smart and our, our cars smart and our, our, our cell phones smarter than they are because uh, we're going to have the transistor budget, so to speak, the, the number of ones mm-hmm. and zeros you need uh, to actually do that.
0: That's it. The last one was exactly the one that, um, I was thinking about smart iPhone, the amount of interaction you have with that technology on a day-to-day basis. If it, didn't just rely on algorithms and say your, you know, your Gmail, your Google account learning from its uh, behavior and interaction, but the entire interaction with the phone and improving over time, which is entirely possible. It's simply a matter of computing power. We have the technology to actually do that, kind of, you know, the software is going to be able to uh, develop in lockstep with the increase in computing power. Imagine, I mean, we can't imagine. That's actually kind of the exciting part of it. So much of the applications exist in the unknown it's the it's the fourth order consequence that was totally unpredictable which ends up being the future of humanity you know um so that's fascinating incredibly exciting um i was just struck chris while you were answering that question how much of an authority you are in this subject you haven't started once no arms no thinking it's all top of head this is really amazing so thank you for that um I want to draw your attention towards a, a company called Planet. You just mentioned the unknown potential of data. This is maybe me just projecting too much what my interests are at the minute, but this company Planet, I'm. are you familiar with them? Yeah, okay. So the, for the audience, uh, biggest satellite company in the world, they have the most in orbit, they're imaging the planet daily, which basically means you're going to have a historical data set of how the image of the, the uh, surface of the Earth is changing over time. It's amazing the type of applications we can do with that. And this is such a tangible example that is enabled by the processing power. Um, And 10 years ago, no one thought that, well, people might've seen that as a potential, but it wasn't possible. I see Planet as an archetypal example of what power processing can enable. And uh, for the betterment of, you know, humanity in uh, the future as well, Um, because obviously there's the weaponized component of it, but there's also just the just amazing liberties that technology is going to afford us.
1: I think I think that's right. And and when you are able to marry the data, the new data, whether it's image data, word data, whatever data it is with the processing power, that's where you get the real um, the real extraordinary advances. Mm. Um, one more on geopolitics and then,
0: uh, yeah, just one more on the geopolitics. Yoss disagreed with me when I brought this up with him, but in another interview I had with a man called Vince Beiser, who wrote a book about sand and, uh, that natural resource and its shortage in the planet and its importance in, uh, cement and so many other products, silicon that they're using to print these microchips on is of the highest grade you know, and uh, so far there's actually just one place they get it from, which is in the United States. Correct me if I'm wrong there, but it's this one small mine. It strikes me that there is a very real potential of a silicon shortage here. Did you come across any of this in your research?
1: That's interesting. I I haven't, Um, you know, whenever I hear about shortages in, in semiconductors, but in any industry, shortages, I think, are always just a question of, uh, at what price, because uh, there's no doubt uh, that if you have a shortage of a certain type of purified silicon, um, if you spend another couple of years and develop some new technologies, you can purify some more silicon to get the, the, the amount that you need. Um, I think there's no deficit of, of silicon in aggregate across the world, um, whether we've got uh, the supplies we need today of, of the, the purest types, I, I don't know. Right. Right
0: it was just in um in conjunction with the same silicon is used for solar panels and given the sort of you know green revolution there is millions and millions of solar powers being created right and um it just it posed the question but it seems like it also didn't raise a flag for you as well so it might just be something
1: over inflated yeah I, I haven't heard people worry about that but that could that might mean that we ought to be worrying about it. I'm not sure. <laughs> Maybe.
0: All right. Well, look, I think that was um, fascinating. And I you've answered all the questions I prepared. I wonder if there was anything that we missed in the geopolitics of semiconductors or some great anecdote that you you know really wanted to talk about that was something memorable from your book, for example.
1: You know, I think you've covered all the key questions from my perspective. So nothing, nothing that stands out. Um, I think we covered a lot of ground. Well then, I will leave you with the final questions
0: that I try to ask as many guests as possible. The first being, talk to me about a moment when you look back on it, you just can't believe that you were so lucky to be a part of it. And I will give more context if you want.
1: Well, in in the course of this research, when I was in the early stages, I was trying to understand how the process of lithography that sml does today, where it came from, um, and the, there's a guy named Jay Lathrop who is who's the holder of the first patent for semiconductor lithography in the U.S. Who patented his um, this process in 1958, I believe, um, and I, I presume that he was um, long deceased. And but I googled the name and found his LinkedIn profile, uh, if you can believe it. And two years ago, I sent a message on LinkedIn, and we got in a a, a fairly long conversation about um, his work he's 90 something today but still um still kind of very sharp and and happy to discuss the origins of lithography so i've had a a number of uh, incredible interactions like that with people who were present at the creation for um of the industry and and knew some of the the great figures who who founded it um which was the, the most fun part of this research that's
0: amazing how does he think about where it's gone from what he would have conceived in the
1: 50s He's the most modest man I've ever corresponded with. I, in my view, he's got as much, you know, much right to claim that he created the chip industry as anyone, since this process is so fundamental. Um, but, but he, uh, he, he has no sort of grandiose uh, view of his own role and. Uh, I think was just uh, appreciative to be able to take part as a physicist and engineer and in some ways sort of a a paragon of of what you think an engineer and a scientist ought to be. I I came away with the utmost of respect for them.
0: When you look into the future we've spoken quite a lot about uh, the chips specifically though this doesn't have to be chip specific and also I sense you have a deep admiration and love for Russia. But this is a question I like to ask every uh, guest. What is a country that you're most bullish on looking into the future?
1: Well, I might have a counterintuitive answer, but I, I actually come away thinking yeah, I'm, I'm most bullish on the United States um, right now. Um, Nothing
0: counterintuitive about that.
1: <laughs> well, s- sitting in the US, that might seem like a counterintuitive answer. I, I guess I'm struck by having studied the history of Silicon Valley um, and not only Silicon Valley, but also the rest of the U.S. tech infrastructure, which extends to Texas and to uh, the Boston area and upstate New York, um, just how many times it's succeeded in reinventing itself. And even when it seems like it's on the brink of failure, um, it's managed to uh, reinvent itself again um, in ways that surprise almost everyone. And so I guess if I, if I, not only from the chip industry, but more broadly, when I look at countries' ability to uh, sort out problems and, and find ways of reinventing themselves. It seems like the U.S. does have that um, that track record. And the, the booms and busts in Silicon Valley, for example, are extraordinary, both in the booms and on the busts. But uh, it, it does seem like there's always, always a boom after each bust, and that's something that uh, there's a lot to be learned from.
0: I'm surprised you say it's counterintuitive because um, that might just be a consequence of you absorbing the daily news cycle. If you step back, I mean... I think uh, it's it's the easiest ca- bullish case to make, to be honest. Do you listen much or read much Peter Zeihan?
1: I'm familiar. I, I haven't read in depth.
0: Well, um, it's, you know, he's got a very... I, I subscribe heavily to his worldview. It's A lot of it is sort of prediction, and prediction is largely folly, I, I would say, at least, based off what I said earlier in terms of predicting the future of infinite possibilities based on fine experience in the past. But he makes the case for... Uh, U.S. coming out on top in this sort of Thucydian argument between the U.S. and China. And it's pretty compelling once you take into account um, just a few sort of baseline factors, which you're very familiar with, which my audience has uh, probably heard at nauseam, so I don't need to say again. But uh, I would recommend it to you to look further if you're interested. Finally, Chris, my favorite question if you could listen to a conversation, a podcast, between any two people of history, dead or alive, no language barrier, who do you want to listen to?
1: Well, that's a great question. I, I would go back to to the ancients. I think I'd like to listen to a, a podcast between Socrates and Plato um, to see how the ancient Greeks did podcasting and to understand the um, the, the core of, of their philosophy or, or someone else from a period so so far ago, it's hard to understand how they actually thought. We've only got fragments of, of the great ancient philosophers, of, of their writings. And I think listening to them in conversation would be uh, revelatory in many ways. Couldn't agree more.
0: Uh, well, Chris, uh, I found that absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for giving me the time.
1: Well, thanks for the invitation.
0: Well, cheers, Chris. Um, I hope you guys realized that comment I made about halfway through. Chris didn't stutter, trip, or commit any other auditory mistakes once. It was really an amazing thing to see live and then in editing after. His book is not available yet, uh, but follow his website and his Twitter, both of which are in the podcast description. And uh, just so you you know, you don't miss it when it comes out, because I imagine when this book is released, Chris will be... Um, hot property on the podcast circuit, since this topic is something very topical, very important. And Chris has now sort of cornered himself out as really one of the authorities uh, to, to, to speak about it. And so if you're keen to hear another chat very similar to this, please look at my interview with Jos Banship, who is one of the creators of the CD and someone at the cutting edge of this technologic of this technical innovation since its inception. Uh, the link to that interview is in the description. But finally, to my ambition uh, for the podcast, like I said last week with Angelica, I'm recording this introduction at the exact same time, but it's been quite a while since I've uh, plugged the show, since most of the episodes recently have been um, specifically about the war in Ukraine. My hope with this podcast is to corner the podcast market for eclectic curiosities, whatever that means. It's not defined by anyone. There is no specific niche. When you're searching in the search function of your podcast, you can't search for eclectic curiosities and get a list. But that's my hope. That is the podcast niche that I want to corner. And the only way to get there, I can see at least, is to have more reviews and more interactions with these various podcasting algorithms. So yourself, your mates, your pets, people you work with, encourage them to leave nice, juicy, healthy reviews. I think that at this stage, at least that's the the best thing that uh, you could do. Um, so visit the website, it's in the description. It's the link at the top to, to Chris Miller. And you know, I just, um, that that's my, that's my ambition for the show. What else can I say? All right. Well, see you next week. Cheers. Ciao.